Let's, uh, let's get into our study on the book of Nehemiah. If you've just joined with us, we're in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 is, and I'm not trying to be silly, but Nehemiah chapter 2 follows up Nehemiah 1, and that sets the scene for the entire thing. I, don't, I know you're not throwing coins at me. Um, they, they roll. That's the disadvantage now of having a wooden floor. Everything rolls all the way to the front. Um, so what we're doing in Nehemiah, just to set the scene before we start reading chapter 2, the tribes of Israel, if you're unfamiliar with this, the tribes of Israel under Solomon, Saul, and then David and Solomon, they organized, they became very fruitful, they were having wonderful years, but then they divided. After another 120 years, they went through a division, they divided into two different groups, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and uh, then what happened is the northern kingdom went into idolatry far quicker, far farther than the southern kingdom, and uh, as a result, God in 722 sends in the Assyrians to basically spank these people. And it's trying to purify, get rid of the idolatry. And so what he does with those ten northern tribes that were remaining, the remnant had gone south earlier, but the tribes up there, the Assyrians come in. Now, I hadn't stated this, but this is really critical. This date and what happens. The Assyrians, in order to keep people from revolting, they were the ones that, if you recall, they would take people that lived over there and move them over there. Some people that lived over there, they'd move them over there. And all different spots. And they would move the people around so that they could not have a common dialect right away and a common culture and a common religion that would, they could rally around. So they blent the different groups. This had tremendous impact upon the New Testament. Uh, it happens in 722 and what happens is these people that they moved in started intermarrying with the Jews. That is where the Samaritans come from. And uh, so the Samaritans that we read about are half Jews, half-breed Jews, but they have other religious taintings to them. It's from this time period. And so they flooded that northern area in particular with all these Gentiles and then they became this, this mixed breed. And so that had a historical impact all the way, like we say, to the New Testament. The southern kingdom lasts for a period of time, but then it starts getting invaded. Three different invasions by the Babylonians. They take them out in segments and the 586 is when they destroy the city. And so 70 years after that first invasion of 605, the Jews are going to go back in and our 606, they're going to go back in and start resettling their region. And what happened just before 536 when they're allowed to go back, the Persians take over from the Babylonians. The Persians have a whole different um, mindset of how to keep people under control. They wanted them to have some autonomy. They wanted them to have some freedom, so they allowed the Jews to go back. And uh, so God in his providence is moving great, great kingdoms to get the Jews back into the land, and they go back, they start rebuilding the temple uh, after those 70 years. A second group is allowed to go back. They start rebuilding the city within months or maybe a year. We don't know the exact time because they're writing this. They happened 540, uh, 456, 457. We're not sure of the exact specific date, but right at that time, within that year of going back, the, uh, the, the beginning of the Samaritans living around this region, they don't want the Jews to rebuild. And so they send a letter back to the king, and the king, they say, check their records. Seventy years ago, they were very rebellious against the Babylonians. And so he checks the records, and sure enough, they had revolted those three different times. And so he says, stop, 
and tear down some of what you've started. Leave everything go until I say you can do it. I want to check this out further. And that's about 12 years before Nehemiah comes on the scene. Nehemiah, his story starts where uh, Nehemiah comes on and we read in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he's in that court of that king, probably the same king. He's in the court and he's serving and he hears about what happens to the Jews back in Jerusalem that for the last dozen years they are in absolute pathetic shape. Um, somebody, Jeremy, brought it up afterwards, says, hey, listen, on the footnote of my Bible, it's giving dates and is it possible that Esther lived around this same time period? Was she a contemporary? Was she involved at all with some of the king's uh, comments about going back in and allowing Nehemiah to lead that? We don't know. We don't know what dates. Here's what gets a little bit confusing. Some of the kings are referred to in some of these as Artaxerxes. Some of the Persian kings are Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, however you want to say it. And so the names blend back and forth. In fact, and I'm not sure which one, I think it's Artaxerxes, is more the titular name. And the Ahasuerus is more the personal name. And then what gets complicated is the kings would adopt you know, a previous king's name. It's almost like the popes always go back to some other name and make it their name. And so one is a title, or the Artaxerxes, we think, historically, is like they all, to some degree, were called a czar or emperor. Well, that seems to be some of the uh, Persian terminology, Artaxerxes, and some of it seems to be Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, however you want to say it. And so we're not sure. And when the names start showing up, sometimes in Nehemiah, sometimes in, in Esther, sometimes in Ezra, it's like, well, the, the same name or a different name, are they the same king? It's a little bit confusing to us because they don't necessarily clarify which one, and they did change and use similar names. So could Esther have been in, in the background? Could she have been one of those that's influencing the you know, uh, favor towards the Jews going back and rebuilding? We don't know. We don't know. Could be. Could be. It just it doesn't say in Scripture. There's no uh, there's no records in the Persian Empire saying that the queen was a Jew. Well, that makes sense. They wouldn't record that. And so we, for us to go, it's going to be a little bit more speculation to some degree. So, um, and it could be. It could be that's the case. Uh, so the, king, when he, the king says, okay, I'm going to, yo, what do you want to do? He says, I want to go back. I want a sabbatical for my job. I want to go back and rebuild. The king says yes. We talked about possibilities why that happened. And then Nehemiah asks for other things. In this conversation, the end of chapter 1, he says, oh, by the way, not only do I want time off from work, but would you be willing to to, what is he? Okay, pay for it. Okay, pay for it. Would you be willing to give me letters? And he needs, he needs the documents because the last they've heard from the king is you can't build. So he needs some documents verifying that he's coming, he's not rebelling. And uh, even when he does come, some of those, those you know, um, beginnings of the Samaritans, they're going to accuse him, we'll see it in chapter 2, they accuse him of rebellion. They, they make that political statement, even though he has documents. And so he's going to ask for, can you give me letters to Asaph and others who are in charge of the forest and the woods and so that I can get the lumber and do the job. And so he's going in, he's traveling. Chapter 2, uh, we continue on all the way down to verse 9. Here's where we pick up. It says, I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent 
captains of the army and horsemen with me as well. Not only did he pay for it, but he gave him escort. When Samballat and the, the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, uh, the Ammonite, heard of it, it now those are some of those little tribes that were under Jewish domination under Saul, David, and Solomon and their, their descendants. And so they were paying tribute to the Jews. The, since the Jews have been out of the land for these 70 plus years, okay, 70 plus, you know, 100 years plus almost uh, on top of that, they don't want the Jews to get back and see Jerusalem become the capital city anymore. They want to be maintaining their independence. So they're going to be upset. So Samballat the Hornite, Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, they heard that I was back. It grieved them exceedingly and there was, that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. I arose in the nighttime, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the donkey, the horse that I rode. I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken, broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. I went to the gate of the fountain, the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass under or by. Then went I up in the night by the brook, viewed the wall, turned back, entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. And all that is is it's describing, we'll see in a map in a moment, it describes his route around the city. It goes on, the rulers knew not whether, whether I went or what I was doing, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor the priests, nor the nobles, nor the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, so somewhere between 16 and 17 he's called a group meeting. He's called the people together. You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more of reproach. Then I told them of the good hand of my God which was upon me, as also the king's word that he had spoken to me. And they said, hey, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn, they despised us, mocked us, and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then, I ans then answered I them and said, the God of heaven, he will prosper us, therefore we his servants will arise, build, but you don't have any portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. In other words, mind your own business. We're going to do this job. And so let's make some observations just very quickly. The trip took typically about two months. It depends on how fast you want to go, if you want to, you know, uh, a breakneck speed or you're normal. The king sent soldiers. Why would the king, without Nehemiah asking, why would the king send soldiers along? What's that? For protection. Because of vandals. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy, you had right. the king has invested in this. Okay. Do we know if Nehemiah has any money with him? Maybe he has a credit card. Okay. Well, remember later in the book, he is, sir, he is um, pr providing food for a lot of these workers, which means he had to bring money with him because they weren't going to transfer it to another bank because they didn't have that system, folk. Okay. And so he's got to bring him. So there he came. So it would make perfect sense. I think there's a couple other possible reasons that we can throw in here. The king likes him. Okay. The king wants him back. So that would be helpful to send him. And he is the governor. He's, as we'll read, read later in the book, he's the appointed um, represent, representative of the king. So by sending troops along, what does he do in the eyes of the people? 
yeah, he's giving authority. He's establishing, by the way, we're still around. We're still in charge. He's a representative. So it plays into it, okay? And there's the money there and so the common protection. And we know historically the route that if you took the, cor- the normal route, okay, it was filled with thieves and brigands. I mean, that's a, that's a no-brainer. That's an obvious. So the king sends people. He arrives. And when he gets to Jerusalem, what's he do? The very first thing he does. First day, day number one, what's it say he does? Day number two, what's it say he did? Okay, not yet. Day number three is when he first starts doing something. The Bible, if you remember what we just read, the first couple days he did nothing. He did absolutely nothing. Why? Why? Okay, you did a two-month trip. Why would you do nothing? You're tired, not... I'm not trying to be silly, but is there value in taking a break? No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's been anxious for this. This thing has been on his mind for months and months and months, yes? He's been fasting and praying about it. You know how you you plan your vacation? This wasn't his vacation. But you plan the vacation, and when you get there, it's like, I want to see everything so quick. Or you plan a project, you want to really get into it. There's some wisdom in this, and I think he's a tremendous administrator. I think he's a tremendous leader of people. He's a tremendous influence, and what he does, the first thing he gets there, is he does basically nothing for three days, okay? And why would you do nothing for three days? You've got to rest. You've got to rest. It doesn't happen with you, but for some of us, if we're tired, do we make good decisions? Okay, if we're hungry... And now, none of you do this, but this is me. I get hangry when I'm hungry, okay? And so I may not respond the best when I'm hungry. My stomach just growled, so be careful of the message. Um, so here he's done, and even though he's anxious, he, he takes time for a break. And then we read the first thing he does is the inspection. Why would he need to take and do all this, this lengthy inspection that he tells us about? He's going to know. He's going to want to know. And, but by the way, his brother could have told him, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a no-brainer that you say, I want to see things myself. I want first-hand information. And uh, because sometimes, and I know it doesn't ever happen much, but some places, sometimes, second-hand information gets distorted. Yeah? Okay. I mean, it happens with messages. Sometimes, you know, somebody's going to deliver you a message from somebody who delivered it to them. Do you remember the game we used to play? Yeah. Does the message ever get distorted going through 10 different years? Okay. And so there's some, there's some real wisdom. He wants to see things firsthand, what's going on. Then he speaks to the people and he told them his plans. It may not sound profound, but I think it is. I think it's profound without, without, um, without drawing too much out of it. But it's so profound because the people, their response was what when he tells them? He, has, he makes a big thing. I haven't told them. I haven't told them. I haven't told them. Oh, by the way, when I got them together, their response was, I think it's verse 18, let us rise up and build. Now, what's, what strikes me is I think just from, you know, they, they rally to the cause. What strikes me and makes it so amazing is consider where they've been that they're going to rise up and build the walls of Jerusalem. Consider the background, Okay. Why is it amazing that he got these people to say, we're going to build? For 12 years, they've done nothing. Okay? If you do nothing for 12 years, what does that do to you? 
does it take away incentive? Okay, does it, does it motivation, you just, what do you end up doing? Just kind of going through the motions. Okay, so think with it, you're getting these people, it's been, now it's been over 100 years since there's been any walls. Do you, don't you think some people say, we, it's always, 100 years means that most of them, it's been this way for their entire life. If it's good enough for my fathers, it's good enough for, yeah, and so we don't need to do anything, number one. The people just, you know, they're used to it. You just get used to some things that just kind of stops. And we've already read back in the earlier that the people were somewhat discouraged. In fact, I'm not sure if it should be chapter one or chapter two, where the comments are, oh, yeah, where he says to the king, the people are in a, in a terrible, terrible strait. And so they're very discouraged. That You know, the mindset is not they want to build. Plus, the last time they tried to build, 12 years earlier, there was opposition. Opposition that we read in Ezra came from people like Sanballat and Tobiah, some of those same people 12 years earlier. What do we read in this text? It's the same people 12 years, er, 12 years later. They're still giving opposition. The opposition has not gone away. And so if they were effective before, the last time we tried to build, they got the king turned against us. So now you, now you don't know people that would do this, but I've run into people that say, why bother? It didn't work before. It won't work now. Okay, and they go and they approach it with a very pessimistic attitude. And uh, so these people, you know, they have no reason to get, get in, encouraged, excited about the building. And the opponents, they, they make statements. We already read it. They speak out and they say, okay, they're going to laugh us to scorn. They're going to despise us, he says. And they say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, who told you you could do this? Yeah, and why are you going to rebel against the king? So right away, they're bringing up the accusation they did before. And sometimes when we hear accusations repeated that were successful, it's like, okay, no chance. And so Nehemiah's response in handling that is really interesting, okay? And I'm going to put it this way. He doesn't let their frustrations, their upsetness stop him. What he does without, without you know, being intimidated, he's going to just get busy and do the job. He's going to go right about it. Uh, he moves on. He doesn't say, okay, hey, guys, here's what we need to do. And he does, the, the thing that's missing in verse 20, in my mind, is he doesn't try to convince them of the good aspects of his cause. He just says, you know, you're not going to be involved. You're not a part of it. Just stay out of our business. And it's going to create problems, but he's not going to be intimidated by the whole thing. And so if we just to pause for a few moments and say, okay, looking at what happened, looking at people who make a difference, what is it that he did that I could replicate and duplicate in my life from a very practical point of view? I think pausing before jumping into projects, is a really practical, applicable lesson for you and me because some of us are very rash. When we see something, we jump in, and sometimes we don't think through, we don't plan through. I, I am notorious in my, in my house for this. I'm notorious when I say, hey, let's do a project, an, a, a renovation project, that it's going to be, I'm going to get it done in five or six hours we're going to tear out the kitchen and replace it, okay? Uh, and so I have these lofty plans, and in five and six hours, I can tear things apart, but I'll never get it back together for five or six months, okay? But it's that enthusiasm of saying, let's get into it without counting the cost, okay, or the time. And so here he does, comes back, and I think one is very important. Is there a biblical principle 
that we should work hard for the Lord? Yes, no. Is there a biblical principle that we, we work hard to the point that sometimes we are getting tired? Is there a biblical principle that we should labor and not, not just say, okay, I just, it's all about ease and comfort? There's a biblical principle of labor. But at the flip side, is there a biblical principle of taking a break so you don't break? Yes, there is. In fact, what is the all the way back from creation? Okay, what God even did it as an example. One day out of seven, you got to change your pace. One day out of seven. And how you define that rest, okay, on the one day out of seven is, uh, is, you know, that was the question. How do you rest? And so the Jews had all kinds of rules about you have to rest this way. For some of you, sitting around is not rest. You are worse if to your family if you just sit. But it's a change of pace. It could be, I mean, can some of you relax and refresh by doing gardening? Yes? No? I think that's just the most despicable thing, to pull <laughs> weeds. I don't think pulling weeds is restful. But for some of you, is it? Okay. For, for, some, you know, for me, playing sports and going out and having a good game of football, that's rest. And for some of you, you're going, what? Okay, do we rest differently? Uh, for instance, for some of you, cooking, could that be restful? Yes? And for some of you, it's called... <laughs> what did you say? Chaotic. Chaotic? Okay. Or, or let's rephrase this. For some of you who are going to cook, I'm picking on you since she would say it is not going to be you know, a rest for me because I'm going to end up cleaning up every pot and, and kettle in the entire house plus some. You know, that, that would happen. So it, it varies. And that's my point is we just have to be wise enough to vary. But taking time to take a break and, and here's, here's something that I think is, it sounds so simplistic but I'm amazed by some, by, by some that, that it doesn't. Are you, do you need to take responsibility to meet your physical needs? Or should we just sacrifice our physical needs all the time on the altar? We just sacrifice. We don't care about ourselves. It doesn't work that way. If you don't take care of your physical needs, the bottom line is you're not taking care of the temple of God. Now, is, can we swing the pendulum too far and it's all about taking care of my own needs to the neglect of others? And that, we're, we're, but there's always this pendulum. We're saying in the middle, I need to get rest. I need to eat. Because if I don't take care of my body, does it affect my spirit? Yes or no? Okay, can I, can I give you, a, ladies, you can answer this best. Is it a challenging time to be spiritual when you have a newborn in the house? Yes or no? Why? You're exhausted. You're exhausted. When do you sleep? Whenever you can. When do you read your Bible and pray? And what happens typically, uh, you know, maybe it's not everybody, but typically when you're in that tired mode and you're not getting regular sleep, when you have a moment and you read your Bible and pray, what is probably going to happen? You're going to fall asleep. Why? You're in desperation mode to get some sleep. It's a very challenging time spiritually, okay? But it's an obligation. So instead of having lengthy devotions, you're doing everything in snippets. And you're doing snippets. Okay, and, and you have no choice. But, my, but as a point of illustration, do we need to take care of our minds and our bodies so we can function and think clearly? If our bodies are out of whack, if our, if our chemical system is out of whack, does it affect how we interact with people? 
Absolutely. You know, there's, um, I was talking to somebody this week that uh, they have one of those work schedules, and some of you guys may have it, okay? Um, they have the work schedule that every other week they're changing the shift. So they have daytime one week, middle shift one week, and then nighttime shift the next week. I think from, from a, and this is a very selfish point of view, I think that would be one of the hardest jobs to stay spiritual because you're always tired. Okay, and does that affect our spirit and our relationship with people? Our crankiness, does that affect our crankiness? Yeah, and you're forever, for, you're forever asking for forgiveness, and after a while you just say, okay, what's the use? And so taking care of our physical needs, and, uh, and, I, you know, and I know it sounds so simplistic, but it really is huge. It's huge that we make sure that we're, that we're not out of sorts and I'll take you to a passage that is just God's point of view of this. When Elijah ran away from God and was those three days traveling and he hadn't eaten, hadn't rested for those three days, when God gets him close to the mount where God's going to deal with him, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then sends the wind, um, the fire, wind, an earthquake, Right? And he's challenging him because he's, he's abdicated. He's gone AWOL. Before God deals with him spiritually, what does God do to him? He, he feeds him and he sleeps him for three days. Isn't that amazing? When God deals with us, he wants to make sure that we're physically aware and sharp so he can deal with us spiritually. Okay, uh, and I don't think the principle is go to bed for three days. Okay, I don't think, was that what you just said? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't think that's the, the, the principle is bigger than that. The principle is if you're struggling, make sure you check your physical, what you're doing physically. Is very, very important. Let's do something else. He probed deeply into the facts. Those who make a difference require time for personal examination. I think too often we just go through routines and we don't stop and evaluate or, this is probably where you and I are the most guilty, we don't reevaluate. We don't go back after a period of time and look and say, are we achieving our goals? There's a thing that I've been doing with the married couples, the premarital counseling for the last few years, is I ask them for one of the assignments that they set up goals as a couple, that they write them down. If they don't write them down, they're not, they're not real. It's like a budget. If you don't write it down, have it somewhere. It's not real. And so one of the things I tell them to do is, okay, set some, some uh, uh, measurable goals that do something like this. Okay, when we get married, we're, gonna, we're going to spit, work on an area that's a big area, communication. Uh, that's one of the areas. Write down, under communication, write down five, six goals that are measurable that you're going to have as a couple, such as for communication, we're, you know, we're going to make this promise to each other that we spend several minutes where we discuss, it could be their finances, okay? We're going to discuss, and on a weekly basis, we're going to go on a date once in a while, and most of us say, hey, wait a minute, you're on a date all the time because there's no kids involved, but no, we're going to go and do something that's focused. We're going to, in communication, if we have an issue or an argument, we're not going to go through two, three days or a day where we're not speaking to each other. We're, co- we're covenanting. We're doing this. In the area of finances, we promise some things like, okay, we're going to get involved with charitable giving. Um, uh, I suggest something like this. Consider, do you, can you as a couple, what's your commitment to each other as far as impulsive buying or buying when something shows up? 
And typically the response every time typically is this. Most every time is, well, we'll never do that. Neither one of us will make a purchase unless we have the other one's full approval. That's not the way real life works at times. You know, when there's something you've talked about you need, you see it on sale, and you say, we could save and get it for 50%, but we, I can't get a hold of him or her, and so, you know, I suggest that they set an amount of money that says neither one of them can impulsively buy something that they need without exceeding this, but they have the liberty to buy, and they could do something that could be beneficial for both. Or whatever they're, who's going to write the bills, the checks, the bills don't, Okay, you know what I mean. And so they lay down these things, and it, it talks about relatives, it talks about church involvement, and then I challenge them, three months afterwards, pull this back out and read it. You will find that probably somewhere you are not following through. Pro- if you're normal, you probably are getting fudging on some of this. Okay, and so what's the good having a goal if you don't go back and reevaluate? And you have to reevaluate, say, have we fudged because we found out that that goal was unrealistic? Are we fudging because we're getting lazy and developing bad habits? Or do we need to rediscipline ourselves? And so when I say that one of the problems for most of us isn't the idea of evaluating, we usually get an initial evaluation. It's reevaluating where we planned on going. Okay? And it, it, it's like, it's like the, this morning. These parents will say in their dedication, we're, we're doing this, this, this. How easy is it to fall into a routine and forget some of those goals that you set up? It happens to all of us. And so this idea of probing deeply, okay, you don't want to make rash decisions and you want to evaluate, and it involves planning at times. Leadership impacting people is thorough planning, which he did several months. We know that he got the documents, things of that sort. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he's planning again. He's planning, and what, what strikes me, I'll give you something so simple as the chapter goes on. When the people show up for work, he's got everything ready for them to go. What, what tremendous not wasting of people's time and energy and enthusiasm. And he's well planned, okay? And we'll talk about a little bit more about that in a couple minutes. He presented his plan openly to his coworkers. This, for supervising people, this is really, really important. Is there a time and a place not to speak? Absolutely. Is there a time to speak? Absolutely. So what does he do in his presentation when he gathers the people together and he's, rally, he's trying to get them to say, okay, get on board with this. What does he say, what does he do that gets the others motivated to join him and to get involved? He speaks to the people. When he spoke to the people, I think here's something. Number one, he informs them. He tells them what he's doing. He tells them his plans. Frequently, Often, in marriage situations, we hear the comment that I never know what the other person is doing. There's a lack of communication. And so he involves them in the information, in the job by giving them information. See if this isn't true. Many people are good workers, but a lot of good workers fail to get involved because of these things. They don't know what they're supposed to do. Have you ever gone to a job, you wanted to work, and the problem is, you weren't working because you didn't know what you were supposed to do. There was a lack of information. Whether it be at a job where you're paid or a volunteer job, the information is very important. One of the things that is very important for us when we're trying to get people to get the volunteers is not just say what to do, but why is this important? If people know why, what the, why the project is, is a part of this, it makes a big difference. 
to let them know what to do, why to do it, or how to do it. Um, this, is, this is so often my case that if I give projects, say we have the Preacher Boys for summer, I give them a project, that I, if we don't tell them how, sometimes they can spin their wheels reinventing the wheel. And so you can say, hey, here's, here's a way you may want to think about it. And then facing the obstacles or some people, they get intimidated. So let's rally the people. Nehemiah rallies them. He is realistic in his goals. He is going to identify with them. When he says, let us rise up and build, we don't want to be a reproach. He does that. He's, he makes it very clear. We don't want to be a reproach. He's, he's engaging something that's very cultural, something that's very innate in this group of people, the Jewish people, the reproach we don't want to be a, we don't want to be a poor testimony. That's you. You who are born again. It's an innate desire in your spirit that says, okay, what I do affects Jesus Christ. And so I want to be careful of that. He did not focus blame. It wasn't about, oh, these people did this wrong, these people. He got off the blame game and he rallied the people by rehearsing God's involvement. Instead of finding all the fault, let's see, where has God been leading? He tells them about God's good hand upon them so far and the successes and how the king is supportive of this. Again, Praise God, here's what's happening. We see motivation. He's saying, you know, God, you got the letters. I got the guards. We, we've got this thing rolling. It's going. And he ends up saying, we will, we will arise and build. So it's a very positive approach. And so he, with his enthusiasm, his positive approach makes a difference. He's persistent. He's very persistent. In the face of the opposition, we already read that he does not get distracted he does not get discouraged by, by some who are being negative. Hey, can we, can we be frank here? If you're planning to do something good, can you expect somebody to have some negative thoughts? Oh, yeah, it's, that's just the way life is. Okay, it could be in your family, it could be in your church, it could be in your work, uh, it could be at school, whatever. He doesn't waver if he's convinced this is where God wants him to go. Let's go that direction, and he moves. He doesn't cater to, he doesn't compromise, nor does he seek to convince the opposition. He just says, hey, this is what we're doing, this is where it's at, we're moving forward. Okay, and I think that's really critical that we don't get sidetracked sometimes, and especially in this world. This, this, the generation we live in, it's almost of a mindset that if everybody doesn't agree, we won't do it. True? We've got to, have, we've got to poll everybody. Well, if we wait until everybody's on board, we're going to never get anything done. If we know it's the right thing to do, let's do it. Now, at the same time, does that get balanced by the fact in the multitude of counselors there is... Yeah, so again, it's a pendulum swing, okay? Just because I think it doesn't mean it has to be done, okay? I need to evaluate and bring in other counsel. But the reality is, um, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're going to probably have some naysayers, no matter what we do, there's going to be some naysayers. And so we, if, if this is where it seems the wise thing to do, let's just do it. So with that in mind, uh, let's add this. He pointed God over and over and over. Here's what God's doing. The God of heaven is working. And he's remembering this. And I think this is important in, from this perspective. It wasn't a ploy. I think this was genuine. Nehemiah, who is a very influential person, in this thing rolling, part of it was his relationship, his skill and ability to approach the king and get the king on board. There was part of his skill set involved. He doesn't take the credit. 
He is saying, God is doing it. God is doing it. It's not about me. It's about God. I think that's an important thought, that we don't deny skill sets, but at the same time, we don't take the credit for it. It's of the Lord. He repeatedly talks about God's involvement in it. I wanted to talk about this area and be very practical and pragmatic for a few minutes. Planning is hard work. And this is a story about planning in this section. And we know it's hard work. We know as well that faith and prayer is no substitute for, okay, we're going to pray, we're going we're going to have faith, but we won't make any plans or preparations. No, there's a balance again. That we, faith, we have faith, we pray, but at the same time, we need to be planning. It could be in something like this. It could be something so simple. I want to teach my kids the Word of God. So I'm just going to pray that my kids grow and, and they just naturally take to the Word of God. It won't work. It just doesn't work that way. You have to plan to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have to train. You have to have some designed goals, some purpose. You have to think through. How are we going to create an appetite for the Word of God? We'll just leave a Bible out there. Right. Okay? You have to think, what am I going to do? If I want to create an appetite for the Word of God, some, some concrete ways that I can do that would include what? Reading it to them from little on. Anything else? How about reading it yourself? Is there anything bad about letting your kids see you read the Bible? What does that do? When your kids see you taking time reading it on a regular basis, they're, they're going to they're be drawn to it, Okay. What else can you do to say, okay, we want, an in, we want to help promote a desire for the Word of God? Pray. Okay, you want to pray about it. What, what, but what can you do? Pray. What's that? Pray. Yeah, he said that. What else can you do? Memorize it together. Okay, memorize it together. Somebody said it. Whisper it. Taking them to church. When we walk away from church, what don't we want to do? Yeah, we don't, want to be, we don't want to be talking about everything that's bad. And by the way, are there bad things that happen at church? Yeah, there are. There are things that, you know, it can be cold in the auditorium. That's a bad thing. The preacher, I, I, I can't imagine this. The preacher goes long. Okay. He's boring. Okay, Th- those things, those are realistic. We run into those at times. We do. Okay, or, the, you know, some kid said something to another kid. Did your kids ever have those issues with other people sometimes? And distract. So we're going to purpose and plan that we're going to try to create a good appetite. Hey, let's take this a little bit further. Okay, Good planning in every area of your life. It, it involves this, getting facts. You can't plan. You want to buy a car, you got to plan for it. Okay, you got to get the facts. If you're buying a car, what are the facts you need to know? Can I afford it? Okay, so in order to answer that, what do you have to know? The cost of the car. But when you figure the cost of the car, what do you got to include? Insurances. Oh, yeah, hey, I got to buy insurances. What else has to go with if you're going to use this car? You got, you got gasoline. You've got tires. You've got oil. You've got maintenance. And it's getting all the facts. You guys do this when you buy a home. You want to know the expenses of the upkeep of the home. When you, when you take a job, don't you want to know some of the facts other than, okay, uh, here's a job. I'm going to take the job. What are the facts you want to know about this job? Okay, pay is going to be in there. Job description. Can I do it? Anything else important to you? Okay, the benefits. Anything else? The hours. 
Okay, the people, what am I, you know, where am I working, the environment, all those things, counting the costs, taking a long look. And we're at the bottom when we're dealing with, and this is where a lot of us are at, we have to at times deal with problems. We have to be problem solvers, okay? Part of the thing of becoming a problem solver is thinking outside the box. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I want you to take that little chart at the bottom of your paper and do this. Connect with less than four lines, four lines or less, without lifting your pen, connect these together. Or in your mind, you got this, connect them in four lines without lifting your, your whatever. Do you get it? Yep, you got it? No, it's got to be four or less. I know the answers, and I can tell you the answers are very, very simple. Okay? Thinking outside the box. Here, let me show you. For sake of time, let me show you this. Here's what you can do. Your immediate, our immediate thought is to think within the framework of that size. Think outside the box. Go outside the measurement and make your points of angles outside and expand your perimeter. You're thinking outside the box. By the way, with the rules that I gave you, nobody asked or said how thick the line should be. You could have one line that's real thick. Okay, thinking outside the box. Or what you could be doing is nobody said, there's nothing in here that said a straight line. Never said that. Okay? You're thinking outside the box. But usually we approach situations with a very, okay, an assumption without getting all the facts or thinking through. And I'm not talking about cheating. I'm not talking about unethical. Let, let me see if we can do some of this, okay? This problem solving. Here, in when, when we're dealing with problems, that could be in our family. It could be finances. It could be a work issue. It could be your own personal schedule. Identify the problem. This is, this is just some practical suggestions here. Identify the problem. Too often, we, we deal with symptoms only. We don't deal with the problem, the cause problem. Prioritize the problems or the solutions. Usually, when you have a problem, there's multiple problems here. If it's financial, that you're running into a problem financially, okay, usually people will say, well, there's a solution to the problem. We won't spend any money. <laughs> then you got another problem, like the kids want to eat, okay, and usually there's multiple problems here when it comes to we're, we're in debt. The problems are maybe there's too little money, maybe there's too much spending, or the problem is we've got to change our lifestyle. And we've got to change, you know, prioritizing. And so you've got to sit down and say, okay, there's multiple different issues here that we may have to suggest, but we need to define the most urgent situation here and address it because if we don't stay focused on addressing the most urgent we get sidetracked and then we say this we tried and it doesn't work because all of a sudden you're trying to tackle too much too big couples will come in they will say we're having problems in our marriage what's the problem and I'll, one of my little things is list the top three big problems and what I'm looking for without them doing it separately they write down the three biggest problems what I want to look for first and foremost is what? With their, their three lists, what do I want to see first and foremost? Is there any duplication? If there is duplication, that indicates what? That's, the, that's not only the one problem, but it's probably 
the, the one of the big, that's the big one. We want to start with one or two of those based upon what they say. Now, when it's all six are different, then I'm more confused. Okay, but almost always you're going to have one overlap if not two. That's going to help to prioritize. Okay, we're going to deal with, and here's what couples will say, we'll deal with all the problems at one time. That's probably not going to work. And what happens? Within a week you say, it, it's not changing. Address one at a time, work through, develop the changes. And typically happens if you're addressing two problems and they learn to deal with two of them, what happens with the rest? They, they usually take care of themselves because they've changed their approach and their lifestyle, okay? And so you define in a single sentence what the problems are. In order to do that, you've got to ask the right questions. Usually our questions are, who did it? Whose fault is it? <laughs> Fine. That, you, can, you can go that route. Or you can say, okay, let's ask the right question. What's wrong here? How did it happen? It's not necessarily the biggest thing is who did it. It could be why did they do it? It could be a lack of communication. It could be a lack of, of um, abilities. And so it's not somebody's fault. It's rather, okay, got to ask the right question. Talk to the right people. Okay, there's a problem at school. The kids are having a problem at school. Usually the parents may, and I think this is, this is a commonality, parents make the, they approach the wrong people. They approach other parents to get other parents' ideas of what's going on in the classroom. Who's usually the one that's most aware of what's going on in the classroom? The teacher. Get the teacher's input, okay? And I understand some, yeah, that may not always work. Get the hard facts, even information you don't want to hear, okay? When it comes to hard facts about budget issues, the hard fact may be you guys should get rid of your credit cards. Ooh, that's a hard fact. You may have to cut down on get rid of the cable TV. Ooh, that's a hard fact. Okay, but that may be a fact you've got to consider and deal with it. So get, to, get involved in the problem-solving problem process, and it's what are my options. Let's see, for about 30 seconds, I'll give you this one. You think about it, we'll pick up next week. The kids never put away their clothes. Okay, their bedroom looks like this. Now, none of you, none of you this is reality, I'm sure. It never happened. It was just, this is a picture of my bedrooms. Okay, um, that's not. Okay, your questions have to go this way. Why is this happening? Okay, I've got, to, I've got to resolve. Why is this happening? Now, what are my possibilities of why this is happening? Uh, kids are kids. They can't help living this way. That could be my, somebody's saying, that's my answer. I don't think that's the right answer. Okay, okay, here we go. My kids are rebellious slobs. Okay. And I think, then this is blame shifting. This is blame shifting. Because the only reason they learn to be a rebellious slob is... Because you didn't train them the right way, okay? Um, that's the hard fact. Poor housekeeping. This could be a possibility. Maybe they are learning this because of the example, okay? Maybe there's not enough room for all their stuff. That could be. Or maybe too much stuff. It could be that could be the thing. Maybe we just haven't properly trained them. So what are our options in, in re dealing with this as a parent trying to change our kids, what are some of the options? We have to pick up next week. I've got to stop here. I, the number one option I'm going to put down is get rid of the kids. <laughs> it's an option. It's not viable, but it's an option. Okay. <laughs>